0: Chapter 16 is where we turn, Luke chapter 16. Are you living for today or are you living for eternity? Well, we're all living for today. We're here now and living right now. And we are all going to live for eternity. How we're living today has consequences for how we're going to live in eternity. And so that is a theme that Jesus is addressing here in luke chapter 16 and uh i think so oftentimes are we not preoccupied at, really fixated on the temporal um things in the here and now or we lose sight of the eternal and what is uh before us whether it's money possessions riches um we we've, we've, we've stopped there several times in luke's gospel given to us by God uh, to enjoy, and yet they're entrusted for a time um, to be used faithfully and wisely uh, towards the eternal. And so Jesus has the attention here of His disciples. Uh, The Pharisees are within earshot. We know the Pharisees loved the attention. They loved the wealth, the status that their position brought them. Uh, Remember just earlier in Luke 16, in verse... uh, um, 15 uh, Jesus says what what you think is important that that doesn't matter to God Um, in this case he knows the heart he knows the motivation behind the use of all of the money and the stuff and the assets and then Jesus tells this story that we're going to uh, read this morning really as an illustration along this same theme that we cannot serve the stuff and God Uh, If our concern is only with the temporary, uh, then we're going to be very disappointed with the eternal. Uh, So I'm going to begin reading at verse uh, 19 of Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's a story from the mouth of our Lord to his disciples and all those with ears to hear. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do pray that you would open our ears now, that we might be attentive to this, your word. We thank you for such grace that you have given to us through this word, enabling us to hear and to understand. Lord, we cannot understand apart from the work of your Spirit in us. Illumine our hearts now. that We might know not only how to understand, but how to apply this word in our lives. Lord, encourage us, instruct us, move us to love and good deeds. Move us to greater dependence upon you the one in whom we rest, that we might be faithful. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking about the perfect game. The perfect game. If you're a Major League Baseball fan, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, The perfect game means that there are 27, well, there's always 27 outs, but 27 outs in a row, no hits, the pitcher just completely shuts down the other team. This is a rare feat. Uh, in baseball, I think there's only Brian can correct me after this, after the service, I'm sure. But I think there's been 23 perfect games in the history of Major League Baseball. There are actually several back in 2012. I don't know if we've had one since then. Um, but there's a there's an interesting event that happened a couple years earlier in 2010. A pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, actually, uh, Armando Galarraga. Um, he was one out away from the perfect game. And there we are. I mean, this is what history is made of. Bottom of the ninth, two outs. The ball is hit and it goes to the right side. And so Galarraga runs towards first. The pitcher scoops it up, flips, catch at first. And the call by umpire Jim Joyce. Safe. And you could hear, I mean, even if you were watching, you could hear the, the gasp from the crowd. The announcers are like, What has just happened? Because it looked so very clear that he was safe. Now, this was before we actually had the instant replay, so they couldn't say, well, you know, throw it and let's take a look at it. No, that was the call. Jim Joyce had called him safe. And now, even before, they they went back after the game, and uh, it showed that he was out by a good half step. But Jim Joyce, even before the game was over, he knew that he had made the wrong call. He knew it. Clear that, that the runner was safe. Um, he's right there. He saw the play, as close as anybody could be, but he didn't see it rightly. Um, what he saw was not the true outcome. And what happened for Jim Joyce, I think, in that in that millisecond, that last play of the game, as it went on a little bit a little bit longer, but that happens for us all the time. We're seeing things. And yet we're not seeing them rightly. We're not seeing the truth of what it is we're actually seeing. So Jesus had just said to, to His disciples, to the Pharisees, to those who are near, near Him, that they cannot serve God and money. Our hearts cannot be devoted to both. So if we're, if we're fixated on, on the money and the stuff that we see very clearly all around us, then that may be our only reward. The way we see the stuff, the conveniences, the toys, the paycheck, whatever whatever it is, the posture of our heart towards them, that has lasting implications. It bears out the truth that without eyes of faith we cannot see. So we're going to, the contrast between this rich man and Lazarus here is just startling. A rich man who everyone knows and admires, and yet he's not even the one named in this story. Well, the one everyone ignores and rejects, his name is Lazarus, the one whom God helps. And even as we read this, it can be a little disturbing. And this imagery here is is difficult. We pray that it will move our hearts to this, this place of gratitude and conviction as we approach each day that God gives uh, as a gift of his grace so we 're going to look at this parable through the two lenses: life now and life to come, what we see and what we don 't see um, we 're going to contrast uh, the rich man and Lazarus in those two time periods, these two states of life, life now and life to come. So two men in the opposite extremes of earthly comfort of earthly concern, the rich man here has everything his heart 's desires he's well known. Um, No expenses spared. He's clothed in purple, uh, Jesus says, so he's living like a king. Every day, just spent in uh, luxury, enjoying the stuff that he sees. Um, And so to the world, he would be the epitome of success. This is the guy you look to. This is the guy that you want to be friends with. Um, Of course, he's wealthy enough to have a gate uh, to gain entrance into his property, and that's where we find... Lazarus is placed at the gate uh, that this rich man owns. And now Lazarus is the opposite. He has nothing of what is seen. He's poor. He's starving. He's defenseless. He's too weak to shoo away these dogs that are not man's best friend in this in this culture. All right? Dogs are seen as sort of the disgusting rats, scavengers, uh, And so the the rich man, he knows Lazarus is there, even mentions him by name in this parable. Um, But there is a a fence, a gate to keep the likes of Lazarus and those away from him. So he wants nothing to do uh, with Lazarus. In fact, when you really think about it, the dogs are giving more attention to Lazarus than this man is. Um, No gesture of kindness, no extending a hand of Of mercy, what the rich man saw, he consumed for himself. So we learn quickly here is that what we see is not always the right call. The rich on earth may be very spiritually poor, while the poor may be spiritually rich. Here's where we really apply this contrast uh, to our lives. Our eternal destiny, which is the real the real truth of the matter here. That's not determined by how much or how little earthly treasure we may have. It's determined, our eternal destiny is determined by the condition of our hearts. We can have everything, everything that this world has to offer and still have nothing in the eyes of God. It's the motivation, it's the motivation of our heart that God sees. It's a heart that God must change. The heart that has been changed, the heart that has been captured by the grace of God, that's a heart that's moved to repentance. And there is fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus tells us that in this gospel. So there's evidence of a living, repentant faith. And this change of heart opens our eyes to those around us. It opens us to see the needs of others and respond. Because we know just how needy we are before the living God. So how we use the stuff, how we use the money, that's now a reflection of our hearts. So back to the rich. His heart is is callous and hard, self-absorbed. He's unable to see reality, to see what is true. What he sees, he's used that only to build this gate, a barrier between himself and others, really a barrier between himself and God. Remember, it was, I mean, now living in our home now, we have, we have fences, not all the way around the house, but on two sides of the house. When we were living in Colorado many years ago. Uh, we were kind of cookie cutter house neighborhood, and there was a six foot fence between everybody's home. And there were times we were very grateful for this, because the neighbor's dogs were kind of big and loud and, and mean sounding. Um, and the only time we could, and so there, it made it very clear that well, you belonged here, and your neighbor belonged here, and his neighbor belonged here. Um, but it, it kept us separated. The only time we knew our, our neighbor was actually home was if we were standing on the back porch and could could see over that fence. Um, so the, these physical fences, these barriers, you know, made that clear. And I wonder what. Fences, what barriers we erect in our own hearts to keep others out? Maybe it's keeping us from really growing in the faith, growing in the likeness of Christ. What are we using to build those fences, those gates? Maybe it's an education, you know, education compared to others, and that that builds a little fence. Maybe it's economic status. Maybe it's our own work ethic, standards that that we have that we're content with that are separating us from others. Um, What we see now, the call that we make with what we see has implications for life to come. And that that life to come uh, piece here is really what takes up most of this story. So in verse 22, both of these men die, but we see they're very much alive, And yet how they continue this life after death is very, very different. A quick point of application here. From the very mouth of King Jesus, we're told that life, a very conscious existence, continues after death. So this is destroying any idea of annihilationism where the belief that once we die, that's it. There's no game over, all goes dark, no conscious existence. That is actually wishful thinking. We could say even more than that. That it is it is hopeful thinking. Um, to be annihilated in body and spirit would be the hope, the hope of the hardened heart, the hope of those who have fenced themselves off from the living God. The book of uh, the Revelation. Given to John, confirms this. It's, they're calling on the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to destroy them, instead of having to face the wrath of the Lamb. That sounds a little chills you know, when, I, when I think about that. And you can't, we're not going to take every detail uh, in, in the parables, not, not setting a precedent necessarily for the truth, but this situation is real. Life continues after death in a very real, conscious state. And how that life continues is in one of two ways. It says, Lazarus was carried to the bosom or to the lap of Abraham. That's really a beautiful picture. Language that's associated with affection and, and intimacy. Lazarus now enjoys this place of rest, this place of comfort in the heavenly abode. So he truly is the one whom God helps. When he had had nothing else, when he had no one else, he looked to the only one who could meet his deepest needs and now he enjoyed the riches of heaven. Now this doesn't mean that if you are materially poor on earth that you will be wealthy in heaven, materially speaking. Uh, It's not that simplistic of a reversal it's the condition of the heart the condition of the heart before god that will determine our eternal reward so for the believer in christ to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord jesus immediately paul expresses this 2nd corinthians 5 philippians 1 remember while hanging on the cross the one hanging there with jesus cried out to him and Jesus said today you will be with me in paradise church family I hope that is a tremendous hope when you hear that a comfort for us when we face all the uncertainty of our days that even before the Lord Jesus returns even before that final judgment and resurrection day we will be comforted in his presence This is not the case for the rich man. Uh, It's really only a place in the Bible where we have the thoughts and words of someone who is experiencing the torment of God's eternal wrath. Um, So before he died, others others looked to him, looked to his wealth, while he refused to look uh, at Lazarus. And now he's seeing Lazarus in a very different way. So this man is in anguish. He's going to remain in anguish. Hades, considered the the realm of the dead, it's very similar to that Old Testament uh, reference to Sheol. This is where the unrepentant, where the ungodly suffer before the final resurrection. Revelation 20, we're told that Hades gives up the dead at the final judgment. So it seems to describe this intermediate state before the resurrection of the body which I know starts getting into a little bit of the theological weeds here. But the point is that this destination is determined and there's no going back. No instant replay. This rich man, he cannot, you know, throw the red flag and say, well, wait a minute, let's take a look at that again. He showed no mercy while he was alive. He will receive no mercy now. And here's something, maybe you picked up on this, but I think it's, it's alarming. He doesn't even confess in that place of torment his need. Did you notice that? In the midst of his torment, no indication of repentance. He begs for relief. Lazarus only touch his tongue with some water. He's begging for relief, but still looking out for number one in that place of torment. The very last verse of Isaiah, the prophet describes the judgment to come upon the ungodly. It says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So we need to remember that this rich man, he's not being judged for being rich, but because he did not repent. And bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But maybe if he can't be helped, maybe his brothers can. So he begs Abraham, isn't that interesting? As if Abraham has the power and authority to do such things. To send Lazarus back. And then Abraham says, well no, they have, they have all they need. They have the word of God and Moses and the prophets. But that's not good enough for this rich man. Now he's going to correct Abraham in his heavenly abode. No, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Abraham, they need something more than just the Bible to be convinced. This guy remains clueless in his misery. Now do you remember what Jesus actually does in John chapter 11? Do you remember? He actually raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. And some have tried to actually connect this Lazarus we are reading about here and that Lazarus in John chapter 11. That may be the, the curtains being you know, slid back and we're seeing what, what had happened underneath. I, I think that's a stretch. There's really no evidence of that. I think we have two guys named Lazarus um, in this case. Um, but what did the religious leaders try to do to Lazarus after Jesus had raised him from the dead? Yeah, they tried to get rid of him. Tried to silence him. They didn't repent. And those who are reading Luke's gospel, like you and me right now, are making this connection that the very one sharing this story would rise from the dead. The very resurrection of Jesus did not result in mass repentance. Israel did not turn to their Messiah when the tomb was empty. There are plenty of ethnic Jews in that boat Right now. One commentator said miracles will not convince those whose hearts are morally blind and unrepentant. So maybe a few things that we can take away from this. Uh, People do not refuse the gospel for lack of evidence. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're, you're chewing on this. It's not for lack of evidence. To refuse the gospel. They refuse to repent and come to Christ because of hardened hearts. God has given us His Word, He's given us the Scriptures, entirely trustworthy, the reliable source of of hope and comfort. And so we trust in the Word of God. We trust in the Word of God more than our experiences. Not even a miracle. Not even the resurrection will convince the hardened heart. I'll just say a word here about near-death experiences, afterlife-type claims. Uh, No examples in the Bible of a person dying, coming back, and providing knowledge of heaven. Um, In Hebrews 12, we're told that the souls of the righteous, they enter in a perfected state apart from the body. So once made perfect, we do not return to an imperfect sinful state. So when when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that's not a precedent that was a unique event to demonstrate the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus. So be cautious when you hear you watch these near death heaven is for real type experiences. We know heaven is for real because the Bible tells us heaven is for real. It gives us all the information that our finite minds need to sustain and grow a faith and a trust and a hope in heaven. Now we live in a supernatural world. I want to make this clear. I have no doubt um, that the supernatural presses in close at the time of death. When that that intermediate state is so very near in this space-time that we are experiencing but the most reliable and trustworthy source we have about heaven, we already have in God's Word. And that's the point Jesus is making in verse 31. Regardless of their experiences, if they do not hear and listen to the Word, they will not be convinced. The Word is our confidence. It's our, our comfort. So let, let's spend our energy, let's spend our days getting to know this Word I mentioned earlier, really can't stretch the details too far in a parable. There's no evidence in the Bible that there's going to be personal communication between those in heaven and those in, in Hades or hell. Jesus is sharing the story to bring out the point that now is the day of God's favor. Now is the time to repent, to turn to Him. And how we use this stuff. All that we see right now is the evidence of that turning. God has given us His Word. He's given us life through the poverty of Jesus. So we can be eternally rich because He became poor. If we believe this Word. And if our lives show that we believe this. So when Jim Joyce made that call at first base, he couldn't take it back. He saw it, he just didn't see it rightly. And so for those hearing this parable, for you and I hearing this this morning, there is an opportunity here that that won't be there at the time of death. An opportunity to see the truth. The truth that today is a day of God's grace and patience. The day of His favor. Our eternal destiny, our eternal destiny is fixed at death. So make today count. Uh, Run to Christ in repentance. Seek his face. Use what you see in life now uh, with heart and hands for the life to come. That's a life that we are assured of in the Lord Jesus. Um, And we can celebrate our union with him as we go to the table. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are grateful. Even for words that can be hard to hear, we're grateful for the warning that you have given. Um, Lord, I pray that we would use what you have entrusted to us in this day for your glory. Not to build fences and gates between others or between you, but to invest in that which will endure. Lord, capture our hearts anew for the greatness of your love. We thank you for your word, a word that penetrates our hearts and our minds. May we be people of your word, growing in the wisdom and knowledge of you. Lord, we thank you for this message. Guide our understanding. And as we go before your, come to your table now, Lord, we thank you that you feed us not only with, uh, with this word, uh, but you feed us with what our bodies and our souls need the most, with more of yourself. Uh, thank you, bread of heaven, uh, for meeting us here, for feeding us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.